You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 47 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. After last week's show, listener Jeremiah T. messaged us on Facebook and said, In your episode next week, concluding the discussion of infantry, could you please talk about bayonets? How often they were used, did it come to -to hand-to-hand much, etc.? I've read conflicting reports, and I was curious if there's any hard evidence. Thanks so much for considering this suggestion. Well, thank you for getting in touch with us, Jeremiah. And we probably should have mentioned bayonets last week when we were talking about rifle muskets. But to be honest, neither Tracy nor I even thought of it then. But we're happy to make up for that oversight now. Well, the short answer is that bayonets seem to have been used fairly often as far as the soldiers actually affixing them to their muskets, but as for how often they were actually used in close combat to stab an enemy soldier, well, that appears to have been a relatively rare occurrence during the Civil War. That's not to say it didn't happen, it just doesn't seem to have happened very often. The figure you most often hear connected with this subject is that 1% of the casualties during the Civil War were caused by bayonets, but we think even that small percentage may be too generous, since it seems to include both bayonets and swords. Admittedly, we didn't have time this past week to do exhaustive research on this, but we did find that in the medical records of the official records of the 246,712 cases of wounds reported in the Union armies, only some 400 wounds are reported to have been caused by bayonets. So even if you double that figure to account for battlefield deaths and for those with wounds that were unreported, and then add on a few more for good measure and to round it out to an even thousand, that's still a very, very small number of overall Union casualties that were caused by the bayonet. And as for most statistics with things like this, Confederate records are sketchy, but we assume those numbers could be comparable to the Union ones. And this seems to track with what the Civil War soldiers themselves said about their experience of combat. Despite dramatic accounts of those instances when it did happen, 
fighting at close quarters with the bayonet seems to have occurred far less often than we probably imagine. A Union or Confederate veteran of several major battles who served through the entire war might never have fought hand-to-hand with the enemy. Confederate Staff Officer Harros von Borke, for example, noted that, quote, Accounts of bayonet fights are current after every engagement and are frequently embodied in subsequent histories, so-called. But as far as my experience goes, recalling all the battles in which I have borne a part, bayonet fights rarely, if ever, occur and exist only in the imagination, end quote. And in his memoirs, Captain John William DeForest of the 12th Connecticut recalled that early in the war, his men had yet to learn that bayonet fighting, quote, occurs mostly in newspapers and other works of fiction, end quote. But here it's important to understand that if the bayonet was actually infrequently used in close combat, it didn't seem to diminish the weapon's psychological impact on those on the receiving end of a bayonet charge. Defenders, when faced with an attacker advancing upon them with fixed bayonets, would either steadfastly hold their ground and by their fire force the attacker to break off the assault, or the defender would panic and retreat. So we just want to be clear that while we're saying bayonets seem to have caused relatively few actual casualties during the Civil War, there was still definitely a power in the use of the bayonet and that power lay mostly in its psychological impact. When properly executed, a bayonet charge boosted the morale of those delivering it, while it so intimidated the enemy that they turned and fled. In the final moments of the bayonet charge, those who stood awaiting it would in most cases panic when it became apparent that the onrushing enemy was determined to resolve the affair with cold steel. And just as a footnote, but the psychological impact of the bayonet charge was heightened by the way Union and Confederate infantry conducted charges. Northern infantry seemed to have been more prone to advancing silently, or when they did shout, it was in unison with a deliberate rolling hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Southern infantry, by contrast, famously employed what became known as the rebel yell as they charged. But whether advancing with the cold steel in menacing silence, with loud hurrahing, or with the wild rebel yell, it was meant to have a psychological impact. It was meant to bolster the confidence of the attacker and shake the morale of the defender. Confederate General John B. Gordon had this to say on the subject of bayonets. Quote, The bristling points and the glitter of the bayonets were fearful to look upon as they were leveled in front of a charging line, but they were rarely reddened with blood, end quote. So the bottom line seems to be that during the Civil War, although it was pretty much always fixed before an attack, a bayonet seldom actually drew enemy blood. But bayonet charges and battles didn't happen every day, of course especially in 1861 when both sides were still getting organized and finding that, in many ways, they were unprepared for the realities of war. We've said before that at the start of the Civil War, the eager young men on both sides who rushed to the colors soon discovered that Army life was not the grand and glorious adventure that they had anticipated. 
For all his dreams of glory, the average northern or southern volunteer in 1861 quickly found himself disenchanted with the actual day-to-day business of soldiering. For many a recruit, his disenchantment with army life probably began when he was issued blocky leather brogans and an ill-fitting uniform. Because of the huge number of volunteers in the early months of the war, both North and South experienced difficulties with clothing and equipping their armies. And throughout the course of the war, because of shortages of cloth, dye, and leather in the Confederacy, Southern soldiers were generally less well-equipped than their foes. At the start of the war, many Confederate soldiers went into battle, still mostly wearing the civilian garb in which they'd enlisted. With its greater industrial capacity, the North quickly caught up with the demand for uniforms at the start of the conflict. But in the early days of the war, when supply contracts were being handed out hurriedly, many an unscrupulous Yankee businessman delivered uniforms made out of a material called shoddy, which is the origin of the word we still use to describe poor quality goods. A contemporary writer described this shoddy material as consisting of, quote, the refuse stuff and sweeping of the shop, pounded, rolled, glued, and smoothed to the external form and gloss of cloth, end quote. Early in the war, Union soldiers found that in wet weather, quote, their clothes, overcoats, and blankets scattering to the winds in rags or dissolving into their primitive elements of dust, end quote. However, after the first year or so, these supply contracts were cleaned up and Union troops had relatively little ground to grumble about the quality of the uniforms they were issued. And as we mentioned a moment ago, the South had great difficulty in producing uniforms that were in any way uniform, and new recruits in the early months of the war continued to wear their civilian clothes or their old militia uniforms. In June 1861, the Confederate Congress established uniform regulations for the Southern Army. The infantry were to be issued a gray, double-breasted frock coat with sky-blue trousers and cap, but actual production and distribution of this official uniform seems to have been rather limited. In fact, it took many months for the Confederate War Department to organize a supply system to issue clothing and equipment to all the Southern volunteer regiments. And despite the efforts of clothing depots established at Columbus and Atlanta in Georgia, Raleigh in North Carolina, and Richmond in Virginia, the Confederate soldiers suffered from shortages throughout the war. The result was that the average Confederate regiment was a somewhat motley crew in terms of dress. A northern newspaper correspondent described Confederate prisoners captured during the Peninsula Campaign of 1862 in this way. Quote, some were wrapped in blankets of rag carpet, and others wore shoes of untanned hide. Others were without shoes or jackets, and their heads were bound in red handkerchiefs. Some appeared in red shirts, some in stiff beaver hats. Some were attired in shreds and patches of cloth, and a few wore the soiled garments of citizen gentlemen. But the mass adhered to homespun gray or butternut, In places, I caught glimpses of red zouave breeches and leggings, blue federal caps, federal buttons, or federal blouses, end quote. 
The butternut color referred to there was a brown of various shades. The vegetable dye used to make cloth gray was found to change it to anything from a whitish tan to a dark brown after prolonged exposure to the elements, which explains why the color of Confederate jackets and trousers varied from pale blue-gray to dark brown. All infantrymen need to look after their feet, the first requisite for this being strong, comfortable footwear. And generally, again, the Union soldier was somewhat better off in this respect than his counterpart from the South. The most common issue footwear were ankle-length shoes that we would call brogans, but that back then were called Jefferson boots, booties, or gunboats. They were made of cowhide and fastened with a leather lace. And it seems the Civil War soldiers preferred these shoes, and with broad soles and big flat heels, instead of actual big clunky boots, which were heavy and were difficult and time-consuming to put on and remove, especially when wet. As I alluded to just a minute ago, the generally deplorable state of Confederate supply meant that the Southern infantry were often without shoes, and there are heartbreaking accounts of them struggling to continue marching with sore and bleeding feet. One of the most tragic examples of this being when Confederate General John Bell Hood destroyed his army up in Tennessee in November and December 1864, and then what was left of that once proud Confederate army withdrew south through the barren countryside, and about half of the surviving southern soldiers were barefoot. They hobbled along the icy roads with feet wrapped in strips of cloth, and the army's 500-mile line of retreat was said to have been marked by bloody footprints. Before we stray too far afield, we should probably take a few minutes to describe the most common outfits of Union and Confederate soldiers as they marched to war. As mentioned previously, the South had great difficulty in producing and providing uniforms that were in any way uniform. The British observer, Colonel Woolsey, watching Confederate troops on the march, said, quote, Several regiments were to a man clothed in the national uniform of gray cloth, whilst others presented a harlequin appearance, being dressed in every conceivable variety of coat, both as regards color and cut, end quote. Be that as it may, a typical Confederate soldier's uniform consisted of a short-waisted jacket, trousers, and cap. The jacket and trousers were made of wool or of a coarse material called jean cloth, which was a mixture of wool and cotton. But in either case, the jacket and trousers were far too hot in summer. The Confederate-issue shirt was a relatively rare object, and many soldiers simply wore civilian shirts. Confederate headdress was almost as varied as the uniform, but there was a preference by both officers and enlisted men for the soft-brimmed slouch hat, which was made of thick felt and was practical for providing warmth in winter and shade from the sun in summer. It often served as a pillow, and it also made a useful foraging basket for holding eggs or blackberries. The typical Confederate infantryman in late marching order would have been outfitted with his musket, of course, and then also his cartridge box with tin compartments carrying 40 rounds, and his leather percussion cap box, both of which were typically attached to the soldier's leather belt. He would have also had a bayonet and a scabbard. Next, he would have a blanket roll slung across one shoulder and tied at the hip. This would be made up of a woolen blanket or even a homemade quilt, and perhaps a shelter half or a captured Yankee gum blanket, 
all wrapped around any extra articles of clothing, as well as personal items like a comb and toothbrush. Each southern soldier would have carried a canteen made of thin tin in the shape of a narrow drum, or of cedar or cherry wood strapped together in a similar shape. But the Confederate canteens were poorly made, and so many were replaced at the first opportunity by ones taken from Union dead or from prisoners. Another piece of necessary equipment was the soldier's coffee cup, an item near and dear to my own heart. The soldier's cup was called a boiler, and it had a wire over the top so that it could be hung over a fire. And last but not least, the Confederate infantryman would always march with his haversack hanging at his side. It was made from cotton cloth and intended to carry rations and items such as knife, spoon, fork, and plate. A typical Union soldier's uniform consisted of a dark blue wool flannel sack coat with its turnover collar and four brass buttons down the front. It was comfortable and quickly became the utilitarian fatigue jacket that saw service in every theater of the war. Many junior officers also wore this sack coat, while senior commanders favored the knee-length dark blue frock coat. Initially, trousers had always been dark blue, but by December 1861, they were replaced by the cheaper sky-blue kersey cloth version held up by suspenders. And did we mention that this uniform would be far too hot in the summer? Yeah, these guys back then must have sweated like nobody's business wearing this wool stuff in the summertime. But anyway, for the opposite extreme, Union soldiers were issued with overcoats for the winter weather, but they were certainly not in evidence during the summer, and many soldiers jettisoned them at the first opportunity anyway as being too burdensome to carry. On the march, the most common headgear for the northern soldier was the model 1858 forage cap, often called the bummer's cap. The forage cap had a narrow leather visor and a high crown with a round flat top that flopped forward at a sharp angle, and these caps became one of the most distinctive uniform items of the Civil War. Although the forage cap was worn throughout the Army of the Potomac, a wider variety of headgear was worn by Union troops in the western theater of the war, where many infantrymen preferred the comfort of a wide-brimmed slouch hat. And then there was the headgear that had been the standard infantryman's hat at the outbreak of the Civil War, that is the 1858 Hardy hat, with its brim turned up on the left side and unit insignia at the front. Most soldiers rejected it as being uncomfortable, hot, and heavy, but for the five regiments of the Union Army's Iron Brigade, the Hardy hat became a badge of honor. In fact, early in the action at Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863, as the Confederates pushed down either side of the Chambersburg Pike, the appearance ahead of the distinctive black hats confirmed that they were facing veteran Union troops rather than local militia units, as had first been thought. The typical Union infantryman on the march was outfitted with his musket, of course, and the accompanying leather cartridge box and leather cap pouch. He would also have a model 1858 double bag knapsack made of black painted canvas. It was common for regimental designations to be painted on the outside of the pack. Things such as the gum blanket, shelter half, extra clothing, and personal items were carried inside. And the gum blanket that we keep mentioning was only issued to Union soldiers, but it was made of a piece of material backed by a thin coating of rubber. It could be used as a ground cloth, poncho, tent flap, or insulating blanket. 
By late in the war, many Union soldiers had discarded their cumbersome knapsacks, and like their Confederate counterparts, they simply carried a blanket roll and haversack while on the march. The Federal-issue haversack was made of canvas waterproofed with black paint. Buttoned inside was a removable bag of unpainted canvas. The haversack was usually slung over the right shoulder and contained rations and personal items. The Union soldier also had a bayonet in a scabbard. And last but not least, most Union soldiers were equipped with a Model 1858 smooth side canteen, which was made of two pieces of tin soldiered together and covered with gray, blue, or brown wool and hung from a white cotton sling. There was also a Model 1862 canteen, which had seven concentric reinforcing rings and was known as the bullseye canteen. The Union soldier's well-made canteen, sturdy haversack, and handy gun blanket were items that Confederate soldiers tended to acquire as soon as possible, usually picking them up on the battlefield or taking them from prisoners. It is very hard to be a soldier. No matter how bad the weather is, you must go. If it rains, you must stand or sleep out, with not so much as a leaf to shelter you from the storm. Perhaps have about half a meal for two days, and that the poorest kind of living. Most of the time we are on the move, and then cannot get such as is fit for a man to eat. Now I will tell you as near as I can what the load is that a soldier has to carry, and a march from 15 to 25 miles a day. He has a gun that weighs 11 pounds, cartridges and cartridge box about 6 pounds, woolen blanket 3 pounds, rubber blanket 5 pounds, two shirts, two pairs of drawers, about three pounds, canteen full of water, which they oblige you to keep full all the time, which is about six pounds, then three or five days' rations, which will weigh about eight pounds, and then your little trinkets that we need, perhaps two pounds, makes a total of about forty-five or fifty pounds. That is what makes us think of our homes in these hot days. Private John F. Brobst, 25th Wisconsin, during the Atlanta Campaign, 1864. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. 
My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The ability to march long distances, often at a rapid pace, and carrying all the equipment needed to fight, ranks high among an infantryman's skills. The necessary stamina for that comes with training, care of the feet, and enforcement of strict march discipline to minimize the discarding of equipment and straggling. During the Civil War, the weather, the condition of the roads, how much cross-country movement was required, and how many obstacles, such as rivers, had to be crossed were all factors of vital importance in assessing a march in terms of time and distance. But a marching speed for a large body of infantry on reasonable roads in fine weather was two and a half miles an hour. But regardless of weather and poor roads, that pace often had to be forced due to imminent battle or some other impending crisis, and some truly epic marches were made by soldiers of both sides during the Civil War. We'll just give two examples here. In March 1862, in the maneuvering that preceded the Battle of Pea Ridge in northwest Arkansas, 700 Union infantrymen were in danger of being cut off by the advancing Confederates. And so at three o'clock in the morning, the Union commander put his men on the road for a frigid march that most of the soldiers remembered for the rest of their days. It was snowing and intensely cold, but a punishing pace was set. A soldier from Missouri later recalled, quote, It was a long and weary day. Hour after hour passed away, and still the straining silent column struggled on, end quote. The Union column came to the icy White River, forded it, and continued trudging across the snow-covered landscape, the men eating whatever meager rations they had in their pockets. But after covering 42 difficult miles in 16 hours, every one of those 700 soldiers reached the main Union position. Not a single straggler was left behind. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is impressive. And then, of course, there's Stonewall Jackson's famous foot cavalry that outmarched and outfought Union forces in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. In May 1862, Jackson was hotly pursuing Union troops under the command of General Robert Milroy when the Federal troops staged a spoiling attack and the Army suddenly came to grips at close range on a high ridge above the hamlet of McDowell along the Staunton-Parkersburg Turnpike. Listen to this account by a young Confederate soldier whose unit was hurried along toward the fighting at McDowell. So the morning passed until a little after sunrise, when we halted at Buffalo Gap. We had covered just what the 21st had covered in the same time 13 months before, and of course, I expected to go into camp. But in an hour, we were underway again, following the same road we had traveled in 1861. We were taking a short rest now every hour, say 20 minutes, and then resuming our march. In about five hours, we came to the very place where we camped in 1861 on our second day out. Now, I thought, we are about 24 miles from Staunton this 8th day of May, 1862, and we will surely go into camp. 
It was growing monotonous, and though I do not like to own it, I was getting a little tired of carrying that musket and other toggery. But no, we are called to attention and soon found ourselves climbing Shenandoah Mountain. The boys were beginning to feel the strain, but none of them so far had fallen by the wayside, though we saw several veterans of the Stonewall Brigade resting by the roadside and looking unhappy. Though I thought it took ages, we finally reached the top of Shenandoah Mountain, and to the westward could see the valley of the Cow Pasture River. We were now over thirty miles from Staunton, but on we went. It was downgrade, and that brought another set of muscles into play, so that we reached Cow Pasture River in better shape. We crossed the river and ascended a hill, where in a pretty little valley near a small rivulet we filed to the left and went into camp along with the brigade. Then we all rolled up in our blankets and went off dozing and dreaming of the girls we left behind us. It was probably an hour later when the beating of the drums all around us called me to my feet. In an instant my clothes were adjusted and I was accoutred for the march, for it was the long roll that was sounding. At the last tap of the drum the companies were fallen in and faced to the front, but it was a peaked-looking crowd that faced to the right and took up the march along with the Stonewall Brigade, still to the westward. Some of the boys were limping, but though sore we were much refreshed by the short rest. The sun was getting low in the west, and I suppose it was about 5 p.m. when we took up the march toward McDowell. We were soon on top of the flat-topped hill that formed the divide between Cow Pasture and Bull Pasture rivers, and could hear continually and distinctly the fire of infantry and occasionally a cannon. It seemed to put new life into the boys as we pressed forward. As we progressed, the firing gradually ceased. We were halted and arrest ordered, and finally marched back to our camp. I was certainly tired, when at about midnight we filed to the right, marched to our bivouac, were given stack arms, and dismissed. I was about five or six yards from my blankets when I fell to my knees and crawled to my blankets, wrapped them about me, and fell asleep. Well, we know we said that this week we were also going to cover what it was like for a Civil War soldier living in an army camp between campaigns and in winter, but the more we dug into that topic, the more we realized that we could easily devote an entire episode to it. So we'll save that discussion of camp life for some time farther down the road in the podcast. So now that we've talked about the infantry, we still plan on covering the cavalry and artillery and we may roll both of them up into the next episode, but we'll see. And after that, we'll hit the small battle that took place at Big Bethel in June 1861, down on the peninsula in eastern Virginia. And then we want to do an episode that, in our notes, we've titled, Why They Fought. And that'll be a show where we look at the basic underlying motivations that led northern and southern men to volunteer for the Union and Confederate armies. And then after covering that, it looks like we'll finally get to the first major battle of the Civil War, the First Battle of Manassas. And it probably won't surprise you that we're planning on using a number of episodes to cover First Manassas, probably at least three shows. And then we want to do an episode on Civil War medicine. So that's all just to give you an idea of what we have planned and where we're going with the episodes in the near future. (laughs) 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Company H, or A Sideshow of the Big Show, by Sam Watkins. Sam Watkins served in Company H of the 1st Tennessee Infantry for the duration of the Civil War, and Company H has been praised as perhaps the finest memoir of an ordinary Confederate soldier. Watkins survived some of the most intense battles of the war's Western theater, including Shiloh, Chickamauga, Kennesaw Mountain, Atlanta, and Franklin, and he was one of only seven surviving original members of Company H when it surrendered in April 1865. And earlier this year, uh, an excellent new edition of Company H was published. It's annotated and edited by Philip Lee. It has over 240 annotations that clarify the situational background, personalities, and terminology that would have been common knowledge to Watkins' original audience, but that might not be familiar to most readers today. So that's the new edition of Company H, or A Sideshow of the Big Show, by Sam Watkins, annotated and edited by Philip Lee. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we wrap things up, we just wanted to remind you of the deal we offered you guys last week. And that is, if you give us 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews on iTunes, then we'll give you a special bonus episode of the podcast. And that deal runs for one more week until next Sunday, November 3rd. And so if by next Sunday you guys have given us those 50 new five-star ratings and or reviews between the UK and US iTunes sites, then on Monday, November 4th, we'll release that bonus episode. So how are things looking so far in that regard, Tracy? Not good, Rich. Not good. Well, that's too bad. Um, But like I said, the deal runs through next Sunday, so maybe there'll be a surge this week and you guys will pull it out. And we'll see. But a big thank you to those of you who have already left us some very nice reviews this past week. We appreciate those very much. And of course, thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.